We heard a lot about vision today. Politicians have visions about what they want this country to look like, and they want you to vote for them based on their vision. And uh, pastors have vision about what they want the church to look like, and they ask you to follow based on that vision. Families have visions, visions of what they want their kids and their grandkids to become, dreams and hopes and plans. The bookshelves are full of stories of people who had vision, industrialists, politicians, philosophers, historians, missionaries, scientists, great leaders who had vision. These are the people that we remember. And no man in the history of the world ever had a greater vision or a passion for that vision than the Apostle Paul. So much of the New Testament is devoted to him carrying out the vision that God gave him. When you see the Apostle Paul, you need to think visionary. When he wrote letters to churches, he was writing to them based on the Word of God and the vision that God had given him of what that church needed to be or to become. And so Paul was a man of great vision. He, he suffered hardship because of that vision. He ended up in prison because of that vision. He ultimately was killed because of that vision. Here's a man who the effects of his vision still ripple across society today. Many of us, when we get to heaven, will find out that somewhere in his life, Paul touched someone that led to a conversion that led to the gospel being spread around the world and ultimately touched you or somebody in your family. The reason we have to wait until the end of time for the judgment of our works as believers is because the works of Paul are still going on. Every time a Gentile is saved, it is because Paul is the primary person who took the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul can't have gotten his rewards yet because they're still being numbered and counted. That's an amazing life. Some people that think they have impacted society or culture will one day find that their works did not last long after they were dead. They were soon forgotten. But not the Apostle Paul. And if you travel to Israel, as we're going to do in about a month, you will go to a place, one of the most famous scenes in Paul's life. It occurs in the book of Acts in an area called Caesarea by the Sea. Herod had a palace there, and at Caesarea by the Sea, this amphitheater is still there. Now, I want to just leave it up there for a minute. As you're facing that amphitheater, in the center of that amphitheater, there is an area where there would have been a throne where the king would have sat. And right in the middle of the section, there's a flat area, and that's where the king and the people around him would have sat and listened to Paul while he was speaking. Now, if you go all the way to the left-hand corner, there are still steps. Most of this in the middle has been restored. 
But in the left-hand corner, in the bottom two rows, are still sections of seats that have not been touched or changed since the day Paul spoke there. You can literally go to that spot and sit on a seat where someone would have been sitting listening to the Apostle Paul defending the gospel before Agrippa and Festus. And Paul would have been standing right in the middle on the floor with guards around him making his defense of the gospel. Now you say, how in the world can a guy speak in an area like that and he doesn't have any amplification? Because Caesarea by the sea sits on the sea. And the wind carries the voice. And so as he stood there, the wind behind him, the shape of the amphitheater, everyone would have heard clearly. About 10,000 people would have heard this speech by Paul. Now imagine the opportunity to share the gospel with 10,000 people at one time, knowing that it's going to ultimately lead to your death. This is something our missionaries face every day is the possibility that because they are before hostile crowds and unreached people, that they could put themselves in harm's way and lose their lives for the defense of the gospel. So Paul, now you have a context for this speech. I want to ask you to turn to the book of Acts if you're not already there in Acts chapter 26, and I'm just going to read a very lengthy part of Scripture and let Paul speak for himself. Now, I know Paul did not speak with a southern accent. But I'm going to let Paul's words speak for themselves, and then we'll look at what it means for us. Acts 26, and let's pick up in verse 9. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign countries. Now, that's his past. In verse 12, he talks about his conversion. While, I, while so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus, which is about 150 miles away from where he's standing, with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, verse 19 is the key verse in this chapter. This is the pivot verse. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both of small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving me mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for those except for these chains. Now remember, Paul is a Hellenistic Jew. He's been raised in Tarsus. He is very familiar with Greek philosophy and culture, but he also knows all the Jewish laws and ceremonies. Since the age of 15, he has been raised and taught to become a rabbi. He has been sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, who is the most famous rabbi of his day. Paul had physical sight, he had insight, but he had never seen like he would see after that blinding vision on the road to Damascus. Now, what you need to think about with Paul is that he had a blinding vision that led to a global vision. He saw the world differently. He saw his Jewish brothers and sisters differently. He saw the Gentiles differently. It changed his paradigm. It changed his perspective. Everything was different in that confrontation with Christ on the road to Damascus. And although it led to suffering, although it led to beatings and being left for dead, although it led to times of shipwreck, Paul never swayed from the vision. He never said, this is too hard. It costs too much. Somebody else ought to be doing this. He stayed in the battle until they took his life. A blinding vision and a global vision. 
Paul Rees says this, what Socrates is to philosophy and Shakespeare is to literature, Paul is to the Christian faith and the church. Over the course of time, he would take three missionary journeys. He would live in the city of Ephesus for two years. He would write an incredible letter to the Ephesians as well as letters to other churches in Corinth and Colossae and in the area of Galatia. He would be imprisoned for about two years at Caesarea. Then he would be taken to Rome where he would be under house arrest and Rome he would be imprisoned for about another two years before he died. Let's look at life's deliverer, verse 17. The, the Lord is speaking to Paul, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. That word rescuing means to deliver or to take out or to call out. Here's what you need to know. You can't have deliverance without a deliverer. You see, Christ is the deliverer. But the deliverer has messengers who also preach deliverance. When a pastor extends an invitation in a church for you to come to Christ, when somebody shares the gospel with you for you to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they are offering you deliverance from sin and hell and death. They are offering you freedom that you cannot have unless somebody proclaims that to you and you get your eyes open that you are a captive that can be set free. Now, there are three things here. First of all, delivered from the tyranny of sin. Delivered from the tyranny of sin. Colossians 1, 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins delivered from the tyranny of sin sin is a tyrant it weighs us down it puts us in bondage it has a grip on us it, it suffocates us it cuts the joy out of our lives but paul says to the colossians christ has set you free from the tyranny of sin now, we have a lot of talk today about the arid spring, which may become the fall nightmare. But they've gone from one tyranny to another. They're still captives and blind to sin. There's a second deliverance, and that's deliverance from the grip of the world. Deliverance from the grip of the world. This world system puts pressure on us. It overwhelms us. It bombards us with its message. It is constantly attacking the Christian worldview, trying to pull us down to its level. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. It's the story of the old preacher who was walking the streets of New York one day, and he came home from it, and somebody asked him what he thought about walking the streets of New York, and he said, you know, it's a beautiful city. There's not one thing there I need. <laughs> you see, the world tries to lure us in and say, you need that, you need that, you need that, and you need that, and you need to be like that, and you need to have that. 
And God says, I can rescue from this present evil age because what it does, it puts us in bondage. Some of you are in debt today and you're, you're more in debt than you can possibly pay off in the next 30 years making minimum payments because this present evil age told you you needed that. And now you're in bondage to a credit card company because you had to have it and you couldn't wait and delayed gratification was not in your vocabulary and you wanted it now and you're in bondage to this present evil age. And until you see this age through the eyes of Christ who says this world's passing away, there's a new world coming. Until you see it that way, you'll continually be lured by a cage that will imprison you rather than set you free. Thirdly, delivered from God's judgment. Delivered from God's judgment. Not only are we delivered from this present evil age and delivered from the tyranny of sin, because of Christ, we're delivered from the judgment of God. This world is racing toward judgment. I don't know how anyone who ever took a History 101 class Anyone who reads and thinks could not see that this world is on a collision course with some destiny and it's not going to be good for most of the world. We are headed. If you don't believe that, read the Bible. The Bible says at the end it's all going to be burned up. This world is not going to be destroyed by a Katrina. This world is going to be destroyed by a fire. And we know that there are enough nations today that have nuclear weapons to make this entire world an inferno. We are headed toward that. Signs of the times are everywhere. But we are delivered from God's judgment. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I got good news for you. Jesus took your, if you're saved, Jesus took your wrath and you've been rescued from the wrath of God on your sin because it was put on Jesus and you've also been rescued from the wrath to come. When God removes his Holy Spirit from this world and all hell literally breaks loose on this world. You see, what you and I don't think about sometimes is that the only reason evil is not going wild and running amok and you're not having to stand with a loaded gun 24-7, the only reason is because there's a restraining hand of the Holy Spirit of God on this world. Amen. When God removes that, men will do nothing but evil and it will bring about wrath. So, let's look at life's design. Verse 15, And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness. You remember, some of you remember when we went through the book, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And in that book, The Purpose Driven Life, the first sentence is it, in it is, it's not about you. <laughs> That's basically what Jesus said to Paul. It's not about you. It's about me. I, I'm giving you to the nations to share the gospel. It's not about you. Now, here's what's wrong with our world today. What's wrong with our world today is that we are, by and large, 
people who are aimless and without purpose. What are you going to do when you grow up? I don't know. What are you going to do after you get out of college? I don't know. What are you gonna, no sense of call, no sense of purpose, no aim, no outlook, no passion, no vision, just kind of coasting through life. In, in essence, what we become is brain neutral, if not brain dead. We're just neutral. And by the way, when you're neutral, you just go with the tide in and out and in and out and in and out because you're not going anywhere. You're just drifting. And God did not save us and God did not call us to drift through this life. Being aimless and being without purpose is beyond what God wants us to be. And by the way, the reason that our society is aimless and without purpose is we do not have a right worldview and we don't understand we answer to a sovereign God. Because listen, if there is no purpose and if there is no aim and if there is no reason and if all that is in the womb is tissue and if after we die it just is over and it doesn't matter then in reality God is not God man is not created in the image of God and we're no better than the next mule you pass on the side of the road but if he is God then he called us for a purpose and his purpose is not that any should be lost, but that all should come to repentance. God came to seek and save the lost. God gave us a purpose in the garden. Our ancestors ate us out of it. But he's called us to call people to himself. And so it really doesn't matter whether you're a teacher or a lawyer or a politician or a plumber or a housewife, it doesn't matter what you do because the question is not how are you going to make a living? The question is what's the purpose of your life? God saved you for more than a job. Now listen, if you have a job, you're there as a missionary. You are there on call from God. You are there to represent the Lord Jesus as a saved believer. You are there on your mission field, wherever it is. If it's, if it's that you're a housewife and you're a stay-at-home mom, then your mission field is your home. If it's you work a 40-hour week or a 60-hour week or an 80-hour week, that's your mission field. You and I are called to be witnesses. There's a difference between making a living and making a life. And some of us are making livings, but we don't have a good life. And the reason we don't have a good life is because we've lost our sense of purpose. I mean, when I get up every morning, I know what my purpose is. By the way, that's not limited to preachers. If you get up and put on a uniform and go mop floors, you have a purpose in doing that because you're going to meet people in that process. God's going to open doors and opportunities for you to be a light in a dark place. So it doesn't matter what you do. Jobs are a means to an end. God puts you there 
to do something with your life that makes a difference beyond your life. So what it means is Christ makes your job something more than a paycheck or a secular pursuit. It's more than, oh, look, that's how much I got paid this week. Your vocation is Christ. In fact, in Acts 13, it says they were first called Christians in Antioch. That word called is a vocational word. In Acts 13, when it says they were called Christians, it means as people looked at them, they thought their calling was to be Christians. They just happened to have a job as tent makers or workers in the marketplace or soldiers or business operators. But their calling was Christ. It was their platform to share Christ, to do what Christ had called them to do. David Livingston said, I am serving Christ when shooting a buffalo to feed my men or taking an astronomical uh, or observation or writing to one of his children who forgets. Everything we do should be done for the glory of God. I don't care if it's washing dishes. It ought to be done for the glory of God. You cut your grass for the glory of God. Why? Because the way you keep your yard is a witness to your neighbors. I mean, everything we do is for the glory of God. When we get that worldview, it changes the way we look, the way we think, the way we dress, and the way we act. Because then we realize we have an opportunity to be light in darkness. Paul had a purpose, verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you and to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. By the way, let me just say, when Paul went to some of these cities, he didn't just go around and stand on the street corner and preach every day. He had to pay his own support by being a tent maker. Guess what? A lot of our missionaries are engineers and farmers and nurses and doctors overseas, and they use their gifts and their calling to bring people out of darkness into light. So let me give you some thoughts here. First of all, to bring light, these verses, to open their eyes. We are called to bring light. We're not the light. Jesus is the light. To open their eyes, to teach repentance, that they would receive forgiveness. You know what? Most people don't think that God will forgive them, and most people can't forgive themselves. And the message of the gospel is both. God's forgiven you so you can forgive yourself. Not only that, to be a witness concerning forgiveness. We are to be a witness. Hey, if you're saved, you're a witness of the forgiving power of God and the forgiving grace of God. You don't walk around with your baggage attached to you and all your old past way down on you. You've been set free from all of that. And we are light and salt in a decaying and dark world when we live like we've been forgiven by the grace of God. And, and then to teach the meaning of lordship, where he says in the last part of verse 18, sanctified by faith in me. Now, we all know 
that sanctification is positional and is progressive. I mean, it's positional and progressive. We, we are saved and set apart the moment we come to Christ. But you're not all there the day you get saved. God's still working on us. God's still refining and pruning us, making us more and more into his image so that the light and life of Christ can shine through us. And then the last thing, life's destiny. Life's destiny. Verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That was Paul's mission. By the way, it's also ours. To preach resurrection of Christ as hope, it is a pledge and a promise in Christ's resurrection that we too will meet him in the resurrection. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is to even subject all things to himself. So Christ has conquered death, he's coming back, and he's our sure hope. Now, if he's coming back, just a word of warning. I wouldn't want to be retreating when my deliverer comes to get me. When the captain of the Lord of hosts, when the king of kings and the Lord of lords comes to get his church, I wouldn't want to be inactive, disobedient, retreating, casual, carnal, or apathetic and have to meet my Jesus and explain myself in that moment. So I want to ask you a question. Are you ready right now? Is your life lined up right now in such a way that you're ready to meet Jesus if he comes back today? If not, you're rolling the dice that there's a day out there in the future when maybe you can get ready. That's a dangerous bet to play. That's one you will not win because no man knows the hour or the day of his coming. We are to live ready. Paul is reminding the Philippians, you live and act like the next breath you take is your last breath and you'll either meet Jesus in glory or you'll meet Jesus in his coming for his church, but you live and act like your next breath is your last one. It'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you think. It will change the choices you make. I was with somebody this week, and uh, we were in, in a store looking around, and uh, he bought a shirt, and he said, well, now i got to go home and figure out what I'm going to give away. And I said, what do you mean? He said, my wife and I made a promise to each other. We're not buying any. We don't need anything else. We're not buying anything else if we don't give something away. Because we don't need any more. So if we buy something, the condition is we got to give something away. And he said, I'm not talking about a ragged T-shirt that I don't want anymore. 
We have to give something away that has value so that it reminds us that this world is not our home. So, here's Paul. Why is he so bold? Why would a guy endure all he endured? I'll tell you why. Because he knew life and death hung in the balance with every person that he talked to. He knew heaven and hell hung in the balance with every person he talked to. And we cannot be disobedient to the Great Commission. We don't get a pass from that because we don't have the gift of evangelism. Because you never know who's going to cross your path. Amen. You never know what opportunity God's going to give you. Right now, we have three people in this church that are in another country among a people group that has no viable evidence of any Christian at all where they are. I want to ask you, with all the opportunities that you've given, given and all that you've heard, what have you done with it? Have you used it for God's glory? Have you seen your opportunities to be a witness? I'm not saying everybody you meet, you hand them a track, go through the four spiritual laws and, and try to get them to pray to be saved. I'm talking about being such a difference with your life. As one of the old saints said, always preach Christ and if you have to, use words. I'm talking about being the kind of different life that people notice a distinctive difference. And that doesn't come by wearing a cross around your neck or wearing a Christian T-shirt. It comes by the countenance and the overflow of the Holy Spirit of God working through our lives. Now, let me say a word to you if you're here today and you don't know Christ. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. That tomb is empty because Jesus is not there. Our Lord has been raised from the dead. We will go on uh, about a month and three days or four days. We'll walk inside that empty tomb. And on that door, it says, he is not here. He is risen. That tomb is a reminder to us that every other religion, every other philosophy, the leader of that philosophy, the leader of that religion is dead and buried or cremated somewhere. But not ours. Ours is risen from the dead. If they could have denied it, if they could have proved it wrong, if they could have proven that the disciples were lying and making all this up, don't you know that the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus would have found a way to discredit his followers? But they could not. The greatest evidence of the resurrection is the people that followed Jesus after the resurrection and willingly laid down their lives for good news. They didn't lay down their lives hoping that they'd get a bunch of virgins or another planet somewhere. They laid down their lives because they believed that dying for Jesus was a worthy cause. This past year, 151,000 Christians in third world and Middle East countries lost their lives for the gospel. 151,000. And yet, although America, 85% of Americans say they believe in God, 
less than 10% will darken the door of a church today. So-called Christian America is the sixth largest mission field in the world. And some of the most lost people are inside of churches. Here's what I know. Without Christ, life is useless. Life is aimless. And life is hopeless. Without Christ, life is useless. Life is aimless. And life is hopeless. If you don't want to waste your life, give your life to Christ. If you want to have a purpose in life, give your life to Christ. If you want to have hope, give your life to Christ. And that's why we're about to have an invitation. I want to ask you to stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. There are people in this room. You may be in the front, in the back, in the middle of an aisle. You may be in the mezzanine or the balcony. You could be in a number of places. But today, I want to invite you, when we begin to sing, to step out from where you are and to come down and find one of these men and take their hand and say, I need someone to tell me how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I need someone to tell me how I can know that I have a relationship with Christ, that when I die, I will spend eternity in heaven. I want somebody to walk me through that. I want somebody to explain it. Don't walk out of this room thinking because you've been baptized or because you're a church member that you know Christ. Those are secondary to a life-changing decision of repentance. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, you're going to be disappointed in Christians, and you're going to be disappointed in churches, and you're going to be disappointed in people, but I promise you this, you'll never be disappointed in who Jesus is and what he can do for you. And so in a moment, when we begin to sing, I'm going to ask you to step out and come. Some of you need to come this morning and just kneel at this altar and ask God to give you a burden and a vision for this world. That God would use you whatever days or years you have, and none of us have any promise of tomorrow, whatever day or year you have left, that God would use you for his glory, that he would use you to be his witness, that he would use you to be his agent on the field where you are, where you live, where you serve, where you work. Father, I ask you to uh, save the lost today. And I ask you to call the saved to a greater awareness and understanding of our responsibility to be your witnesses in this world. As they sing, heads are bowed. You're praying, people are coming. You step out right now.